The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, so uh, Revelation 22, we're going to read verses 1 through 5 tonight, and we're coming very, very close to the end. So this is the reading of God's Word. Then he showed me a, a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Father, how we thank you that you give us a glimpse of what awaits those who love you and who love your son's appearing. And we pray, Father, even now, that you would open your word to us. We pray that this wouldn't just simply be to satisfy curiosity or increase knowledge, but we pray that you would speak to us through your word. Father, we believe that all scripture is, in fact, God-breathed. And we pray that you would use it tonight. Lord, there are probably hundreds of needs in this room that nobody knows but you and the person that's suffering. And so we pray that you would supernaturally use your word to speak to your people tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So... um, as we get to chapter 22, of course, the chapter divisions, you understand, are artificial. Um, really, the passage goes through 22.5. So, um, just always remember that when you're reading your Bible. The chapter divisions are, are sometimes used um, by the devil to keep, keep you from reading on. <laughs> okay? And, uh, and you know how the... The verses got in there, right? So Isaiah didn't write chapter and verse. Moses didn't write chapter and verse. Paul didn't write chapter and verse. And so chapter divisions come along around the 10th or 11th century. And then, um, now they had other ways of locating texts, but, and then verses came along a couple hundred years later. And you had a, an inebriated monk that was on a donkey who had a scroll and so every time the donkey stopped, he'd put a new verse. So that's why it seems so weird. That's an apocryphal story, by the way. Don't repeat it as if it's true. <laughs> so 22, 1 to 5 is just is the continuation of this description of the new Jerusalem. And so just remember, this is, this is important for us to keep in mind. You have, you have the convergence of the new creation is the... New Jerusalem, which is the new Eden, which is the new temple, which is 
the new and eternal dwelling place of God. All of that comes together. In fact, that shouldn't surprise us as we've gone through Revelation because Revelation will oftentimes take um, uh, multiple angles on something, and that's what we're seeing from Revelation 21 through this, this text tonight, is that this new creation, this new heavens, and this new earth actually is um, going to be the eternal dwelling place of God. And so it, is, uh, it follows the pattern of what? It follows the pattern of the first garden temple, okay, Eden. It follows the pattern of the tabernacle. It follows the pattern of the temple. It follows the pattern of the holy of holies. It follows the pattern of the idea of Zion or Jerusalem. And so all of these things converge together, and it's just different angles looking at the same reality which is the new creation. And so when you get to 22, 1 to 5, really, the, the, um, in a sense, the, 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 the photographic angle in 22, 1 to 5 is now Eden. Right? And so the parallels to Eden are remarkable. And just, again, another reminder that um, when, when, when we read our Bibles, we have to remember that the connections to the Old Testament go way beyond mere citation of Old Testament texts. So you can see in the New Testament where you have citations of Old Testament texts. Typically, our Bibles will format them differently, so they're all in caps or whatever. And then, of course, you can see in the cross-reference where it comes from. But you have to understand that the Old Testament infuses the New Testament way beyond mere citation. So there is no quotation uh, about the tree of life or the river of the water of life, but if you can't see the connection back to Eden... You have to look harder, right? And so a lot of times, because we, um, we read too fast, for one, right? Okay, you, you read too fast. You know the cure to reading too fast? <laughs> you know how to slow down? Take Greek. You'll read slower, trust me. Okay, so you got we read too fast, so we miss connections, right? So texts connect, and there are parallels, there are conceptual parallels, and there are verbal allusions, and so when you read your New Testament, what are you looking for? You're looking for connections. You're looking for Old Testament echoes. And this little passage is chock full of them. By the way, the whole book of Revelation is chock full of them. Um, Although you don't have uh, but a large handful of Old Testament citations in the book of Revelation, you have hundreds, hundreds of verbal parallels and allusions. All right? So... The river of the water of life, of course, that's the heart of the city, uh, indicating the fact that eternal life is at the very heart of the new Jerusalem, right? And so it's just running right down the middle of the city, and it is, it is the river of life, okay? And so what, what, is, um, what characterizes this uh, new garden 
temple city? And the answer is life. It comes right from the throne, all right? Which, by the way, parallels Ezekiel. And so then there's the tree of life. And again, the echo is going back to Eden. And what we have actually in Revelation ends up being sort of an expansion on the tree of life. It bears 12 kinds of fruit. And by the way, I mentioned last week that Ezekiel has trees of life that are on both sides of the river. That's probably the idea. It's singular here probably because it's just simply collective, right? So instead of saying trees of life, you say tree of life to connect it back to Eden, but it doesn't mean there's just one. They're on both sides of the river. And so here it tells us that they bear 12 kinds of fruit, and so uh, we, we don't want to get bogged down in trying to figure out what are the literalistic details, like you know peaches, apricots, whatever, we have to understand that what's being, what's being um, expressed here is the idea of absolute abundance. It's the abundance of life. So it's the tree of life. So the fruit that comes from the tree of life symbolizes life itself, which is why Adam was actually shut off from the tree of life after the fall. And so the idea of, of 12 kinds of fruit is this is, this is rich and abundant life, all right? And it yields its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. And so that I, the, the very idea of, so here's this tree of life. There's an abundance of, of life. There is a richness of life. And then this, this idea of, and the leaves were for the healing of the nations, in a sense, what it does is it connects us now to the ultimate tree of life, which, of course, is the tree upon which Jesus was crucified. We talked last week that the New Testament uses the term tree many times instead of the word cross. Why? Because it's making that connection. And so the tree of life, the real tree of life, is both a tree of life, but it's also the judgment tree. Okay? It's a judgment tree because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus bears the curse for us. And so, therefore, that tree upon which he's crucified, where he bears the curse for us, becomes to us a tree of life, and the nations are healed through it. Beautiful picture. Absolutely wonderful. Then we get to verses 3 to 5. And this is, this is now a picture of the new humanity. So when, when, you th- when you think about what God is doing in the new creation, um, it, it's not like it just starts at the new creation. right? When does... Okay, so trick question. Alert. Um, when does the new creation begin? What's that? In the first advent, through the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and outpouring of the Spirit. Okay? That's the inauguration of the new creation. And you said, are you crazy? And the answer is no. I'm not crazy. This is Paul's perspective. So, 
Circumcision doesn't matter. Galatians 6.15. Circumcision, you try to say it, doesn't matter. Or uncircumcision. What matters is a new creation. Huh. So what is Paul contrasting? Circumcision, uncircumcision. That's old age. Okay? That's not just old covenant, that's old age. That stuff doesn't matter anymore. What really matters is new creation. Well, what's the new creation? If anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. So guess what? When, and we've gone over this a hundred times, but when you were born again by God's spirit and united to Jesus Christ, you became a partake, partaker of the age to come because you became a new creation in Christ, okay? Now, a new creation is evidence of the future invading the present. So, are you totally a new creation? No, so we are conflicted new creations, right? We're conflicted, Um are there times, so even like on the plane today, um, uh, you know, I, I have a window seat in the emergency uh, exit row, and, you know, you're, you're praying that that middle seat doesn't get taken up, and, and so um, this, this really big, tall guy, you guys remember Tarkus Mossberg, okay, like, like Tarkus big, comes and and sits down and takes both armrests, and I start, I like start praying imprecatory psalms, like, God, I hope his arms fall off, or, you know, I mean, but then, okay, and he goes right to sleep, so I'm like, I'm not gonna, I don't have a conversation with him, so what I do is I put my, my little ear things in, and I start listening to, to worship music, and it totally changes my attitude. So it's like, okay, I can stay scrunched up up against the, the, uh, the, the window. And as I'm listening to song after song, I find my heart yearning for more of Christ. Okay? Is that part of being a new creation? Absolutely. Is getting upset because some guy took all of the armrest and more a sign that the new creation is not all together here. (laughs) So so we are we are in in many ways we are walking contradictions at times. Right? We belong to the world to come, but we're still in this world. We're not to be of this world, but we find it's very easy to be of this world. And what we end up then discovering is there is an incredible tension within our lives between the new and the old, okay? So the new creation is inaugurated through the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But the consummation of that is nothing less than God bringing about 
the fullness of a new humanity. So when does the when does the new humanity start? Well, the new humanity actually starts in this present age. In fact, isn't this the very language of Paul when he's talking in Ephesians chapter 2 where the idea is or or Galatians 3:28, right? So there's there's no longer a male or female bond or free Jew or Greek one new man in Christ, Ephesians 2, that, that uh, dividing wall, that partition that actually kept Jews and Gentiles separate, it's been broken down. And what is, what is going on right now in this present age? And that is Jesus is making one new man, which is a new humanity. Okay. So the church is right now the new humanity. It's interesting, uh, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 10 where Paul says, let none of us give offense to Jew, to Gentile, or to the church of God. So you know what Jews are, and you know what Gentiles are, But the church is something altogether different. And it's something altogether different because it's a part of the new humanity. It's a part of that one new man that Jesus is now creating through his sacrifice as the Prince of Peace. And so so now, again, is the new humanity, do do we experience conflict in the church? Right? Okay. So, oh, so let's say you're married to a Christian. Okay. I look around. It seems like, you know, a lot of married Christian couples here. Is, are you a part of the new humanity? The answer is yes. Do you always treat your spouse as a member of the new humanity? (laughs) <laughs> okay, yes, all right, just mark it down for posterity, Craig Knoll says yes. Um, now, um, <laughs> you, you need your theology adjusted here, but, <laughs> so here's, here's the thing, is that, that we're new, but we still battle with the old, but when you get to the new creation, John's already said it, the old is gone, the old is gone. And so it is the, the consummation of the new humanity that Jesus is beginning even now. And so this is the way that John describes the new humanity. Verse 3, no longer any curse. Okay. You see it there. There will no longer be any curse. Now what's interesting about this, and it didn't catch my attention until 5.30, and that is, this is not the usual word, for curse, because the word for curse is not used in the New Testament. The word cursed is used in the New Testament. Okay. Or accursed. In other words, when the word curse or accursed is used, it's used in terms of the 
object that is accursed. Here, it is the curse itself. Okay? And so, the picture is that, of course, through Jesus as the last Adam, the curse itself, which of course is pronounced as the judgment by God on Adam, on Eve, on the serpent, and on all of creation, right? So all of creation, we live in a cursed world. And so we're under the curse in the new creation, in the new Eden, the new humanity. Now there is no longer any curse, which is absolutely amazing because it's the tree of life that's, that's brought healing, And the last Adam has reversed the fall, and therefore he has, as it were, um, undone Adam's curse. And so here we dwell securely with the full knowledge, no longer any curse. By the way, this is better than Eden. Okay, it's Eden, but better than Eden. So when Adam is, is, is created, Adam has the ability not to sin, but he also has the ability to sin, right? Okay. In the new creation, no more curse, and you and I are forever secure in not being able to sin. You know, people that love free will, you know, free willies, free willers. Um, So I I want you to think for a second. In the new creation, you're going to be so perfected into the image of your son, into the image of God's son, Jesus, that, that your will is going to be confirmed and permanently fixed so that you are not able to sin. Okay? And you know what? I say, Lord, violate my will. <laughs> right? In the new creation, violate my will. By the way, that's not a bad prayer to pray like every morning. Lord, violate my will. Make me walk in your ways, right? Make me willing. Work in me so that I, so that I don't do the stuff that I want to do. Make me want to do the other stuff. So, throne of God and the Lamb are in the middle of it. Again, Eden Temple. And so, here's um, Adam who served God as the priest. And he's communing with God in the garden. And course he gets expelled no more chance of being expelled and then here's what John says and his bond servants will serve him and so here we have um, you're going to be an eternal slave okay. you say oh that sounds terrible Actually, it sounds, it sounds glorious. Because if you have a good 
kind, benevolent master who only has your good at heart. You want to be his slave. So, right now, again, you feel this tension. So, when you're converted, you stop being a slave of sin, and you become a slave of righteousness, right? This is Romans 6. You were slaves of sin, now you're slaves of righteousness. And so, here's, here's the question that makes this kind of painful for us. Are, are we very good slaves? <laughs> I think it depends on what you mean, okay? Are we good slaves of righteousness, right? Are we good, faithful slaves to Jesus every day? Answer is no, right? So guess what happens in this age? So, so in the new creation, in, the Eden, in Eden, we're all gonna be as bond servants, which is just a nice way of saying we're all gonna be as slaves and we're gonna be as slaves in such a way that we cannot choose to not be slaves. So like right now, today, maybe you made a choice to serve sin. Maybe you made a choice to serve self. Maybe you made a choice to, to actually not serve God. By the way, all of us today, maybe it was small, but we all made choices to serve self instead of God. In the new creation, we are going to be perfected bond slaves. And we're going to do it happily. Right? By the way, being a slave of righteousness is not a burden, is it? In fact, it is, it's the most glorious freedom that there is. And you know what happens when we do serve sin? We realize that that's nothing but miserable bondage, and yet uh, servitude to righteousness is true freedom. And it's glorious. And, and in fact, it's far more satisfying. There's something that brings joy and contentment about being a slave of righteousness. And the the burden of my heart is that when I don't serve God as a slave of righteousness, but there's coming a day. The king is going to be right there and will serve him with gladness forever. That very petition, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's going to be such a confirmation, conformation, or I think conformity is the word I'm looking for. There's going to be such a conformity to the image of Christ that just as Jesus could say, I delight to do thy will, O God. We will be absolutely confirmed in loving and perfectly doing the will of God as his bond slaves. You're starting to get a taste of actually what's going to make the new creation so glorious, right? 
You're still going to be you, but all the yucky stuff about you that not even you likes isn't going to be you anymore. Is it any wonder John says, even so, come Lord Jesus, right? Save me from me. And so we get this beautiful picture, and then, and this, this ends up just, it's unbelievable. You see the phrase, verse four, they will see his face. So Moses goes up on the mountain in in Exodus 32 and he's up there on the mountain and he enters into God's presence. He's going to get the law because he broke the first copy. Okay. In a verse or chapter 33, Moses prays this prayer in verse 18. He says, I pray thee. Show me thy glory. What does he want to do? He he wants to see the unmediated, immediate presence of God. Good prayer? Oh, you better believe it. You better believe it. And then God says these words. He says, no man sees my face and lives. In other words, Moses, right now, you have to see my glory. By the way, you understand the way this is working, right? To see God's face is to see his unmediated glory. It's not like God has a nose, two eyes, two ears, and a mouth. Right to see his face is it's it is um, it's the imagery of direct intimacy. Moses wants to see the glory of God. God says, "You can't see my face and live. Nobody can." Moses, if you were to see my face, you would be consumed. Moses, if you were to see my unmediated glory, you would be, you would be reduced to an unsightly little pile of ash. And so, God then tells Moses, I will take you and I will hide you in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by you and you will see my back parts but my face you shall not see. Okay. So who's the great, by the way, who is the 
greatest man of God in the Old Testament. Moses, make no mistake, Moses. Moses is the man. And he actually knows God. We've seen passages like this before where God says, I may speak to a prophet through a dream or a vision, but I speak to my servant Moses as a man speaks to his friend face to face. In other words, Moses knew God intimately. And so when Moses says, I want to see more of you, God says, there's no way you can look at my face and live. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And, and of course, all of this language is, um, is anthropomorphic language in a sense. God doesn't have hind parts. What's he saying to Moses? He's saying, you can't, you can't look right on me. I'm going to mediate my presence I'm going to mediate my presence for you by doing two things, hiding you in the cleft of the rock and then passing by, not so that you see my face, but that you see my back parts. By the way, it's an act of mercy. And so God God honors Moses' desire, but he does it in a way that doesn't consume Moses. And by the way, if you, you, you have to be able to see the gospel there in, uh, in, in Exodus 33. How in the world can you and I ever actually enter into the presence of God? How, in you, how can you and I ever be accepted by God? And the answer is this. You have to be, you have to be hidden in the rock of ages. You have to be hidden in the cleft of the rock. In the new creation, we will be so conformed to the image of Jesus as the firstborn among many brethren that that desire of Moses will come true. This is, um, they'll see his face. This is the consummation of yours and my redemption. See his face. To actually look upon him. Now, you can get into all kinds of discussion like, well, who are we going to see? And and I would I would argue that even throughout eternity, the only the only physically visible member of the Godhead is going to be the God Man Jesus Christ. But understand this: the idea of actually, and they shall see His face, is that we will have a new intimacy with God in the new creation, so that we will know just as we've been known. Now, that doesn't mean that the finite comprehends the infinite. That can't happen. You're always a creature, which means you're always finite, even in the eternal state. God is always infinite. And so it's not as if, uh, oh, I get to know God just like God knows me. No, God knows you in a way that's like incomprehensible to you. Okay? God knows you better than you know you. God knows things about you that if you knew, you would go to the Golden Gate Bridge and take a jump, okay? And so, the idea, though, is 
I'm no longer going to be looking through a glass darkly. I'm going to be seen face to face. And it will be, it will be, I think, that that initial glimpse. So even so this this is this is what I, I think is that in the intermediate state, which is so our loved ones, so my mom, um, you know, Arnie, I mean all all of our, you know, George, all of our loved ones that are in the presence of the Lord right now, they know the Lord far better than they did here. Praise God. Right? Praise God. But it will be in the new creation when everything is consummated that we will know him in a way that we have never known even in the intermediate state. That's what makes heaven, heaven. You understand, that's what makes heaven, heaven. God is there. And you see him. We have names on foreheads. By the way, you see any other things on foreheads in the book of Revelation? Okay, so yeah, Mark of the Beast is like a forehead deal, right? Any other forehead deals? 144,000 that are sealed, okay? Have God's, God marks them, okay? What's the idea of actually having his name written, we're not going to look at all the passages, but you end up having, so the priest would wear a turban that actually then had holy to the Lord, okay? Um, you have, this uh, comes from Isaiah 62 two. So what is it that his name will be on our foreheads? The idea is, is that we'll completely belong to him. Completely. We will be totally his. Forever. Forever. And again, hear, hear the echoes of Eden. Okay? So here's Adam on probation, and he, he actually is a traitor against God, expelled from the garden, expelled from God's presence, and actually alienated from God. In the new creation, what happens? He writes his name on our foreheads, and we're forever his. And that never changes. There's no chance of it ever changing. You are forever his. And then the next description is there will no longer be any night. Now, I was thinking of doing this. I didn't have time. Um, go home, and sometime before you go to bed, go to YouTube and type in David Phelps, no more night. You know who David Phelps is? David Phelps is a wonderful singer. And um, listen to that song, No More Night. When my mom died, Jenny O'Connor sent me that song. And it is glorious. So no longer any night. This is analogous to no longer any sea. There's not going to be, you don't, you don't, need a lamp, right? You don't need the light of the sun. 
Why? No more night. How come? Because it's the Lord God who illumines them. So what that means, if we say no more night because there's, there's permanent light from God, then what does that mean? It means, okay, no more darkness. I, okay, so that's not like profound, right? Okay, no more night, light all the time. Hmm, no more darkness. Now, the idea of no more darkness is absolutely glorious. Never met a kid that was afraid of the sunshine. Right? Any of your kids ever afraid of the dark? Okay, you know what? You don't want to admit it, but some of you are still afraid of the dark. Okay? 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 So, Ariel has this little little lamp by her bed. I'm like, we're going to sleep. Turn that off. I like sleeping with it on. Why? What are you, eight? <laughs> Turn it off. I like, I like to sleep when it's dark. I like the light. Okay? So maybe she thinks that's some reflection of our hearts, that she likes the light and I like darkness. But, but here's, here's the reality, is that darkness in the Bible is typically not good. So one of the plagues on Egypt was a darkness that could be felt. The kingdom of the beast, actually his kingdom is completely darkened. Okay? And so the idea of darkness is, is not good. And so what happens is no more darkness, which means a lot of stuff. No more storm clouds, eternal day. Absence of darkness. John Clement actually wrote a hymn. I don't think we've ever sung it. I don't even know how it goes. But he writes, God shall wipe away all tears. There's no death, no pain, no fears. And they count not time by years, for there is no night there. So you won't need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because God's going to illumine. In other words, what's going to happen? God's face is going to shine upon the new humanity. Right? That's the picture. God's face is going to shine on the new humanity in the new creation. And do you know what that means? That means that the ironic benediction is finally, fully, completely fulfilled. Right? So sometimes we end a service, we say these words, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then, by the way, we, we don't cite this part because it's not part of the benediction, but it is important. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and then I will bless them. And so that very prayer of he'll make his face to shine upon you, he'll lift up his countenance on you, is going to be consummated. It's, so every time, every time we say those words, we say those words, um, can it be true that God's face shines upon us in this, in this life? And the answer is yes. How do you know God's face is shining upon you in this life? 
Do you feel, uh, do you feel a, a rise in the temperature of the rays that are hitting your face? No. You know God's smile, God's countenance being upon you, shining upon you. You know it by faith. Right? Okay. Um, you don't... By the way, this is not the way to live. You don't walk outside uh, of Reds and see a $20 bill stuck on the ice and bend down and pick it over and go, wow, God's shining upon me. Okay? Because apparently he wasn't shining on the guy that lost it. Okay? You can't judge by circumstance the shining face of God. But you know, because of Jesus, by faith. In the new creation, you'll know it by sight. You will see it by sight. His face will shine upon... By the way, this this has been the, um, the... the passion and the desire of psalmists and, um, and, and prophets is to what? Is to have God's face shine upon them. Notice, read through the Psalms. Notice every time there is a prayer or a statement of confidence, God's face will shine upon us. Or the psalmist, for instance, in Psalm 11, when I awake, I will be in the light of your likeness. Right? So all of, those, all of those holy desires to see God, to know God better, to actually experience um, his sh- shining face upon us, lifting up his countenance upon us, all of it is consummately answered. And so Craig Coaster, a, a Lutheran, says, the night of sin and death is gone. The light of God's salvation and light has come. Faith gives way to sight uncertainty issues into understanding. The story of God's people reaches its culmination when they, quote, rest and see, see and love, love and praise, and this is what it will be in the end without end. It's glorious. By the way, that last little phrase, they will rest and see, see and love, love and praise. This is what it will be in the end without end is from Augustine. One last thing. And they will reign forever and ever. Who's going to reign forever and ever? the ones who see his face, the, one, the ones whose foreheads are inscribed with his name, they are going to be the ones, the ones that, that God actually illumines, New American Standard illumines them, shines on them. They're going to reign forever. And so you go, okay, so let me, let me see. So we're going to be servants or slaves forever. But then we're going to reign forever. How does that work? 
It's actually simple. So when God created Adam, what did he tell Adam to do? He told him to rule the earth and the sea and the birds of the air, right? In other words, Adam is created, is is Adam created as God's servant? Yes. But is Adam also King Adam? Yes. In fact, the, the, the title that we use to depict both of these roles is the idea of a vice regent. So, God's representative, i.e. his servant, who in turn rules. Now, our rule is not a sovereign rule. Our rule is a derivative rule, right? It is derived from um, God's kingship himself. So we are a kingdom of priests to God. And so here's this wonderful picture. So just as Adam was supposed to exercise dominion and rule over the first world, so in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ, we will actually do what we were intended to do, and that is serve God through the Lamb as transformed image bearers who do what? Serve as vice regents of God in the new creation, in the new Jerusalem, and we will reign forever and ever and ever. That's what awaits the people of God. You know, one of our problems is that we don't think enough about the future. I mean, eternity. We don't think enough about it. Has it ever occurred to you that as God's people, oftentimes we are incredibly earthbound in our perspective? Has it ever occurred to you that our gaze is fixed on the earth instead of out there to what God has for us? Revelation is designed to get you to look forward. And you might say, well, I heard it said by my grandmother that you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Okay? I want to say, the more heavenly minded you are, the more earthly good you are. We get so locked in to the now that we forget that there's a not yet. And that's our inheritance. And I want to say that just so uh, the first Sunday in uh, in 2024, we did um, those who love the first appearing of Christ will love the second appearing of Christ. Remember that? just a couple weeks ago, okay? Every time the Bible gives us a glimpse of the future, 
It's to transform our present. It's to make us a different kind of person today. Well, how does that work? Well, if you know at least just a glimpse of what awaits us as God's people, that transforms today. It transforms how we live. It transforms priorities. It transforms perspective. It reminds us what is of permanent importance and what is temporary. And so, as you think about the new creation, because next week, John just goes right into a series of exhortations as, as he concludes the book. And so this is the end of the new creation section. But as you ponder the new creation, remember, this is what God has in store for you. And that changes the way that you're a mom. And it changes the way that you're a dad. And it changes the way that you're an employer or an employee. It changes the way that you deal with people. To have an eternal perspective transforms the perspective of this age, which is passing away. And so think about it. Listen to songs about it. Read about it over and over and over again. Search it out. Have any of you ever moved? Ever started looking at an area? So I'm thinking of the walls actually right now. What do you do? You don't just like take a dart and just like close your eyes and throw it at a map and go, okay, that's where we're going. Load up the U-Haul. You start like looking, right? So when, when we decided we were going to move to the Carson Valley and, and plant a church, you know what we started doing? We started looking at the Carson Valley. Started digging in. We, we wanted to know what it was like. We wanted to know everything about it that we could. We wanted to know elevation, how much snow. I mean, um, what, is, uh, what, what do most people do, right? Uh, and where are we going to live? You want to know that stuff. How much more ought we, ought we want to know all about where we're going to live forever? Okay. And knowing that one of these days you'll have an address change should change the way that you live today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Lord, it just it seems that we could camp here and drill down here and think and just rethink about these things, and we pray that we would. We pray that um, we pray that as we think about loved ones who've gone on before us, that we would ponder what, what they're experiencing even now. We pray that we would 
spend time thinking about what awaits us and what our inheritance is and, Lord, what it means for your name to be on our foreheads and no more curse, no more night. Father, we pray that you would thrill our souls with this and, and give, us, give us a hunger for our eternal home. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.